Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Chit Chat Across the Pond, and this is episode number 745 for October 3rd, 2022, and I'm your host, Allison Sheridan. This week, our guest is Bart Bouchatz with a Chit Chat Across the Pond light, or as light as Bart and I ever get. How are you doing today, Bart? (laughs) (laughs) I am doing good, and folks, this is the inaugural moment of the new Bartificer Creations podcast studio. Uh, this is literally the first real recording from my new machine and my new everything. So I'm really pleased. What'd you get? So I'm looking at a Mac Studio, a studio display, a Wave XLR connecting to my Audio-Technica mic I've had for years on a really nice new boom arm that is actually long enough to reach. Uh, and I have an unconfigured stream deck. Um, and you're wearing would... on your head. Oh yeah, and a pair of AirPods Macs. Or AirPod Maxes or AirPods Max? Maxin? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but they're blue. They're blue. That's the most important they're thing. They're very blue. They match your eyes. They look blue. great. Blue. <laughs> they're also engraved with uh, Let's Talk, which I thought was Oh, that's touch. really cool. You'll have to show me that afterwards. So uh, we're taking a little hiatus here from um, Programming by Stealth to take a side lobe into a security issue. And I'm excited to hear about this. Yeah, so... Or not issue, really. Understand Not an issue. Yeah, a topic. A very broad topic, actually. So I am, yet again, in the process of applying for some promotion of sorts, which means my head is in a security place. Uh, And I did a whole bunch of prep work on the assumption of what I thought would probably be needed for the interview, and I was wrong. And I'll be (laughs) darned if I'm throwing all that preparation work away. So it has become this episode. Well, that's good. We win. We, we do win, and I think you might win twice, because uh, I, the chances are that what I actually have to prepare for the interview will make a really good chit-chat as well sometime soon. Oh, there you go. Good. Um, so yes, I sort of assumed we'd have an open brief again like last time, uh, and therefore I was going to talk about my favorite new uh, security framework called Zero Trust, which we mentioned in Security Bits last week, I think. I think and, we did, yeah. Yeah, I gave you a teaser, and then as soon as I gave you the teaser, I realized that we could have a really fun conversation about this. And I was busy writing slides, and then I got the actual brief, and it's nothing to do. I can't fit it in. So <laughs> <laughs> this is what happens when you give me seven minutes worth of PowerPoint, and I turn it into some written text. I think it's longer than seven Uh-oh. minutes, but quite a bit. Um, but it's basically in the last Two years, and it's been really short, the security industry has completely changed its philosophy, like completely changed, which is why you were saying things last week, like, that's not how I remember it being when I was working. And it's like, well, that's not how it was three years ago. That is how recent okay, some so of this it's, stuff is. It's not just that I've actually retired nine years ago and camped, and it seems like the day before yesterday, huh? Has it been? Oh, wow. Okay. That's, I think. It, I'll believe you. Uh, it feels like only yesterday that we that, that you retired and we were going to learn to program. Then again, we have been, we're at episode a hell of a lot for programming by stealth. So, okay, I guess I do believe it. Anyway. Episode a hell of a lot. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, in terms of IT security, it's kind of a strange thing of everything changes and nothing changes depending on the point of view you take. So, actually, the problem to be solved never changes. We are always trying to achieve the same simple outcome, which is generally speaking expressed in the community as the CIA triad, which sounds really cool because, hey, CIA triad. We need to get confidentiality, i.e. what should be secret needs to stay secret, integrity, 
you either can't make unauthorized changes, or at the very bloody least, we'll know you did. So in other words, the data is trustworthy, provably. And availability. I should be able to get to what I should be able to get to, and you shouldn't be able to take it off the air on a whim. So if you can give people confidentiality, integrity, and availability, that is the holy grail of cybersecurity. That covers everything. So that's what we're always trying to achieve. It's just the how changes all the time because the whole world just keeps changing around us. And, and from so, the user's perspective, they always think it's that the security people don't want to make anything available to me. <laughs> and from the security professional's perspective, it's always that the uh, the users are trying to destroy the integrity, right? Yeah, uh, well, or the confidentiality, or both. Um, yeah. Right. <laughs> and it's, it, it's actually, one of the things you learn very quickly is that these three things, you can't maximize all three because they interact with each other. So it's a bit like making a stool. You have to keep the legs somewhat in balance so the whole thing falls over because I can give you perfect confidentiality. I can take your server, encase it in concrete, and throw it at the bottom of the Bay Bridge. <laughs> perfect confidentiality. No one is getting that data. Terrible availability. I give you perfect availability. I can skywrite it on the moon. Terrible confidentiality. Right? So you're always trading the two of these off against each other, which is, like you say, where to draw the line is where many arguments can be had. A lot of arguments. But what has changed dramatically in the last few years isn't what we're trying to achieve. It's how we're thinking about how we're getting there. So when you were still working and for a long time before and until really quite recently, we were using what is formally called perimeter-based approaches. But if you see it on slides, it's always described in terms of medieval castles. You're talking about moats and keeps <laughs> and, you know, Martin Bailey castles and moats and perimeter walls. it's actually a screen and, door, right? <laughs> but it's probably a screen door for a start. Full but of holes. <laughs> let, let us imagine for a moment this perfect world as it was in the old model. You would have your corporation, and that would be analogous to your castle, and it would have a moat around it and a big curtain wall and lots of defences, and the only way in would be through one really well-guarded gate. Right, a little drawbridge, a little barbican, the whole works. And that would be your edge You mean the one the Trojan horse comes in through? That, that one, exactly <laughs> that one. Right, and that, that would be your edge firewall, and that's where you'd have all of your stuff. And that would get you into the corporation, and in there you'd have all of your desktops and your printers and all your bits and bobs, and then you'd meet another wall where the crown jewels were kept, and that was the castle keep. And in there, you had another firewall that was protecting your data center. But once you get into that firewall, you were kind of in the data center. So really, an attacker, you, know, you bash through one wall, then you get to poke about willy-nilly, and then you bash through one more wall, and then you have the crown jewels. And that, that is a model that makes a decent amount of sense when you are geographically all together. Um, but... That's not really how it works these days, because most of our stuff is in the cloud. Where do you dig your moat? Oh, good point. We were, we were certainly just thinking about trying to do cloud stuff. And, you know, the kind of company I worked for, I'm not sure they have yet. But <laughs> Well, a lot of early cloud stuff, they try to fit the cloud into the moat using... A wormhole, effectively. So you would do things like make a point-to-point -point VPN to your cloud provider. And so you would have everyone come in through your, your, you know, your drawbridge, 
And then the people who needed, you know, the stuff that needed to go to the cloud would go through like a tunnel to the cloud and then do its stuff in the cloud and come back through the tunnel and back out through the drawbridge. But now you have more points of failure instead of less. And so, yeah, sure, you've ticked the tick box that says we're in the cloud, but you haven't actually achieved any of the advantages of the cloud because you're a one power cut away from disaster still because everything's coming through your bloody drawbridge still. Oh, good point. Right, right. So it's just, you're, you're wedging. It's a bit like the first things we did on television was radio plays on screen. And then we discovered you could do whole <laughs> new things. Well, that's kind of what the cloud has done for computing, right? It, it's completely, it's completely changed things. So we basically needed and now have a whole new model. And the name it has gotten, which is kind of by accident, is Zero Trust which is a terrible name by all accounts, but hey, it's stuck, so we're stuck with it. Deal with it, I guess. Huh. I, I, I know very, I don't know a lot about it, but from what I've heard, I thought it was a pretty good name. Well, it causes a lot of issues because staff think it means that they're not trusted by their organization. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, it sounds like it's about not trusting well, they anything. they aren't. <laughs> Perhaps. They aren't and they shouldn't be. Arguably, it's actually in a zero trust world. You actually should, you actually have more more appropriate trust placed in people. But that's a, that's a whole other argument. So, it, but it's I don't know. I find it a very confusing name. It doesn't do what it says in the tin particularly well. Okay. Uh, but it's also not its first name. It's like with everything. It's an idea that's been brewing for a decade, and then it was on the back burner, on the back burner, on the back burner, and now it's the most important thing ever. And it just went from on the back burner to the most important thing ever in about three years. So the first hint of the idea goes back to 2003 when um, I just looked it up. It's in Jericho was where this CISO forum was. And it was a bunch of CISOs, so they didn't have a cool name for it yet. So they called it Deperimeterization. Okay. <laughs> so the old world was all about perimeters, and the old world is bad, so therefore, what's the new world? Deperimeterization. Yeah, okay, so maybe there are worse names than Zero Trust. Yeah, I was going to say. So the next, over the next couple of years, from, 20, from 2003 onward, there was a lot of toing and froing within the the high flyers of the IT. Oh, sorry, I'm going to back you up. I just okay. realized you didn't define CISO, and people probably don't know what that is. It is a chief information and security officer. So it's the so this C-suite. Is a, f- a bunch of them together. Yeah. So it's the C-suite executives responsible for IT. So you, like your CFO is your C-suite executive responsible for finances. Your CISO is your C-suite executive responsible for IT and C- IT security. Okay. So they all got together in Jericho and they had a good chat about deperimeterization. And the idea pinged about in some very elevated circles. You know, people you may have heard of like Forrester Research, Gartner, those kind of people. And they were writing white papers over and back. And it was still kind of an academic thing. And then I think the first really, really mainstream company to have a go was Google, who released a white paper, which they also didn't call Zero Trust. They called it Beyond Corp, because you want to go beyond the concept of a corporate data center. So they had Okay, a, there's another bad name. Another bad name, but Beyond Corp. Uh, but really, the idea, the idea f- crystallized when your friend and mine, NIST, joined the party. They released a paper called the Zero Trust Framework in 2020. And that kind of has defined how we think about Zero Trust. 
NIST is the National Institute of Standards and Technology. From the United States of America, and they do a lot of excellent work in the world of cyber. So at this today, you will not find a major vendor who does not have a guidance on how to go to zero trust. And they will take vast wadges of cash off you to go and have a consultation with you and to hold your hand and to guide you through it. And if you Google for it, you will find a million and one paid papers. You can get a free preview of what Gartner think and then pay Gartner lots of money to tell you more. And you will find the same for every firewall vendor. You will find Microsoft give all their stuff for free because the advice is free because to implement it, they tell you how to do it on Microsoft's cloud. (laughs) So yeah, free advice, not free implementation. Um, even big companies who are in the news recently for the wrong reasons, like Okta, are big on pushing this stuff. It's just everywhere. Um, and I was reading some numbers on this, and it's kind of shocking. In 2020, when Microsoft did a state of the zero trust, they found that a whopping 6% of security decision makers had heard about zero trust. That was in 2020? 2020, so the year before, yeah, so they said a year ago, and the 2021 was the year on the report, so by my cipher, wow. that's 2020. Okay, all right. Okta released so this a report, is new. yeah, Okta released a report at the end of July of this year, and their report found that 97% of organizations had started or were about to start their zero trust transition. Wow. So from 6% have heard about it, to 97% of it are either on their way or at the very least fixing to make a plan. Okay, That's so huge. this isn't just a buzzword. These this are not. people are actually executing on this. They are, and I've linked in the show notes actually to Microsoft's advice because very, very cleverly, Microsoft start their sales pitch with, and this is how much money it will save you. So they start with the return on investment is their first pitch, and then they go into the security and how it'll make everything better. But they start with the money, which you know shows you how well they know their audience. <laughs> Very I, I'm tempted to ask what that what that's based on, but I think we have to understand what is zero trust before we can get to my questions. We really do. Yes, exactly. So let's let's stop teasing. It actually fits on one PowerPoint slide. Now, different people have slightly different definitions, but to be honest, they all boil down to the same thing. Three principles that you basically apply to everything, and where the different people disagree is how they categorize everything. Some people have five pillars of everything. Microsoft have six pillars of everything. But basically, three ideas applied everywhere. So what are those three ideas? The first idea... Let me ask one basic question here. Is Zero Trust a technology solution or is it a concept and a philosophy? I would say the... strategic direction... Yes, is the answer to that to some extent. Ultimately, it is at its very, very core, it starts off as a philosophy, which some people will describe as a framework because it's designed to help you think in a structured way. And then you're supposed to use this philosophy slash framework to write for your organization your zero trust principles, and then you apply those as a zero trust process in your organization. So how so you it's, end up... It's, proce- it's process and philosophy and strategic direction crap. It's not real then. Uh, sorry, well, but I've, I've just no. sat through too many presentations on, on philosophy and then the implementation isn't concrete. Well, no, but it's, you see, it's supposed, you end up with very concrete stuff. That's kind of the point. So you start off with three ideas and then you apply them to these pillars 
which are users, devices, apps, infrastructure, networks, and data. So if you are applying stuff to your users, your devices, your apps, your infrastructure, your network, and your data, what have you not applied these ideas to? I'll be darned if I can figure it out. Uh, So you actually end up with, if you do it right, you end up with your organization defining its policies, and those policies get turned into concrete security controls. So the policy says you should not, and the security control says you cannot. The policy says okay, so you Okay, so mu- security controls where I get interested, because that's the real stuff. It is. Because we've got lots of philosophies and, and you know, I, I just hate all that esoteric stuff that goes on nice PowerPoint slides and gets put away into a drawer. I, I've no, I've just well, spent way too much of my life lost listening to things like that. That's why I'm, I'm dubious. Okay, but you actually can't have effective controls without the policy above them. What you end uh, sure. up with is chaos, not sure. control. So it actually is kind okay. of important that it starts at the top. And like your old, like like the old medieval castle, it's a way of describing the world so that everyone's on the same page. And zero trust is the same sort of thing. So most people's zero trust journey starts by changing no technology, but describing what you have in a new way. And then when you describe it using the zero trust ideas, the path forward becomes blindingly obvious because you then end up with these gaping holes. And then you fill in the holes. And zero trust tells you the order in which you should start filling in the holes because it's one of those 80-20 rules. If you do 80% of what you should do, you get... Or sorry, if you do 20% of what you should do, you get 80% of the protection. Uh, An awful lot of it comes down to those users, those pesky, pesky users. Anyway, that's what I'm worried about. (laughs) So the three principles are actually very straightforward. So the first principle is best summed up with the sentence, never trust, always verify. So you continuously verify all identities. And an identity is a lot bigger than what you think. So an identity covers people, things, and apps. So I have an identity. You have an identity. That's easy. We're the users. My Mac has an identity, your Mac has an identity, my iPhone has an identity, my watch has an identity, every device has an identity, and you want to be able to verify that it really is Alison's iPhone trying to do this. And then all of the things we use have an identity too. If my phone is trying to do something in my OneDrive, I actually need to be sure it's my OneDrive and not random piece of malware. Right? It is actually really important that you know that the people are who you think they are, the devices are what you think they are, and the apps are what you think they are. That okay. makes sense? Yeah. It's not it's not earth shattering, right? None of this is earth shattering. It's a way of thinking of a thing. So never no, trust always, always verify. Verif- what would trusting mean? So trusting Assume that if it, if you verified it's Allison, that then that is really her device? Yes. Or in the old world, like- if it's if the IP address is inside the corporate network, it's okay. That would be uh, the ultimate okay. example of the old trust model, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're on the right. inside, okay. but we trust you. You've done nothing to earn <laughs> that trust. You're on the inside. Okay. If we've learned anything in the last five years, it's not that. <laughs> Precisely. Exactly. Okay. All the right. second principle can be summed up with the sentence, just enough, just in time access, or the principle of least privileges, if you prefer a fancier definition. You give users access, the access they need when they need it, no more than they need and no longer than they need. So in other words, the user has exactly what they need in terms of things and 
time. So you don't have permanence, right? If you need to be an admin on something while you work for HR, well, you should only have those rights while you work for HR. If you only need them nine to five because your policy says this is not to be done from home, well, then we should just actually block you outside of nine to five because if you've gotten hacked and you're in there at 11 p.m., well, we've said in our policy that shouldn't be allowed. Well, that policy needs to become an actual security control. So, no, you're not allowed at 11 o'clock. Policy so just enough just-in-time is exactly what, uh, what was it, Uber wasn't doing when they had something like 5,000 people had root access? Yes. Right. Yes. <laughs> that like would be the inverse. People at, at one time probably needed it and it never went away. Precisely. That is, and that is a very big problem in a lot of institutions where someone needs something once and the call goes to IT and IT do what they're told. And that's the last anyone ever thinks about it ever again. And over time, when someone's been in the same organization for 15 years, they've amassed a lot of privilege. Mm-hmm. And if a system has been up for 20 years, it's amassed a lot of privileged people. A lot of them. Okay. So that is the inverse of what you want. Just enough, just in time. And then the last principle is the one that, that sounds simple, but wow, does it have impact. Assume everything can be hacked. Hmm. We've done security bits long enough to know that's true. <laughs> but what if you were to actually increment, implement that in your design? Assume everything can be hacked. Or some people will actually say to assume everything is hacked, which I find a little too scary. I'm going to go with assume it can be. <laughs> and the other way you'll hear people describe this principle is that you should limit the blast radius. If you know that everything can be mm-hmm. hacked, well, then you should be building everything so that if one thing gets hacked, the damage is contained. Everywhere you go, you should be containing the damage because you're assuming anything could be breached, so everything should be contained. And that results in a strategy called micro-segmentation, where you just have these tiny little cells of functionality, and if any one of them gets hacked, they don't get any further. It's the opposite of the old castle model, where once you're through the gate, you have everything. It's like you break into the gate and you find yourself in a beehive. It's like, great, I've broken into one cell. I'm now no closer to anything else. Got to break into the next okay. cell, and then I'm no closer to anything else. I've got to break into the next cell. So it's called micro segmentation. So those three ideas, you then apply them to your design for how you deal with your users, how you deal with your devices, how you deal with your apps and services, how you deal with your infrastructure, so your servers, your firewalls, your load balancers, all that kind of stuff, how you build your network, and how you handle your data. Hmm. So you apply those three ideas across those six they're called pillars of security and then you've basically secured everything because if everything is the least privileges everything is being verified and everything is being micro segmented to keep the blast radius small you have yourself a pretty darn good world so the principles don't make complete sense to me when we get into some of these. Like, uh, never trust, always verify, and just enough, just in time. Those both apply to users. They apply Uh, to users? They might apply. Let me go. Let me keep going. I haven't got to my question yet. Uh, Never trust, always verify, and just enough, just in time would also apply to apps. So apps don't have privileges they don't need for longer than they need them. Mm -hmm. But data, how does data itself have just enough just-in-time. I can see a user having just enough just-in-time to the data, but not the other way around. 
Um, that well, the from data the data's itself, point of it? view, from the data's point of view, it would be protected because you're assuming it could be hacked. So one of the most important thing when it comes to data, actually, we'll focus on this quite a bit later. In this world, your data is in the cloud and your data is perpetually, it has metadata stapled to it. And that metadata will do things like mark the file as being mandatory encrypted and you'll have security controls that prevent that file ever being decrypted. You will have a staple to it, stuff like lifecycle information. This file must be retained for seven years for auditing purposes. Or this file may not be retained beyond the 4th of February because of GDPR. And those okay, that right, data is right, stapled okay. to the file, and that is then a security control can then deal with it. The other very important one is that files can be flagged as being sensitive. And if you try to hit file download, and it will look at the file's metadata and go, well, nope, nope. This file can never be downloaded. Okay, okay. So they, they can go both ways. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. That helps. And in, and in terms of your network design, a modern network using cool stuff like 802.1x can actually tell the device... So you you physically plug the Ethernet cable in and your device will have a certificate. And if the certificate isn't acceptable to the switch, you will either get no network access or you'll be put in the bold person VLAN where all you have is internet access and you can't see a single on-prem thing. Okay, so that would be, say, a, you've got a vendor that comes in to try to sell you something, then they, they need uh, internet access. That would be uh, the benign the, use. Right, right. But I mean, but that would be a real use, right? They need to sure. be able to get to their servers to show you their VM yes. to do the blah, 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 the demo that they're going to do for you. So I assume it doesn't have to be a hard cable. It can be Wi-Fi. It can indeed be Wi-Fi too. Yeah, because Wi-Fi that's is Ethernet just, too. Exactly. It's just Ethernet over a different medium. Yeah, so that right. you're okay. exactly right. So that's how it works. So th this kind of technology does a couple of very practical things. Like when you plug a phone in, that phone will be identified because you're verifying the identities. It will be identified as a phone and it will be dropped in the voice VLAN. And you plug in a laptop from IT and it will end up in the IT VLAN. You plug in a laptop from the French department, it will end up in the French department's network. So that's already cool. Well, it, well, and that's also that in the case, of, I keep thinking of the vendor example, which was something mm. we used to have to deal with is we just wouldn't let them on at all. Right, it's much but better if the they sandbox. can get on and automatically they can go do what they need to do. Yeah, interesting. You, okay. you effectively dropped them outside of your corporate network and you put them on what is the equivalent of coffee shop internet. It's effectively <laughs> so they think what they're inside doing. the castle walls, but they're actually... Outside, yeah, they've been dangled out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and so where this really comes into its own is some random bad guy comes in with the, there's these little things called rubber duckies. They're little thumb drives that contain Kali Linux and that they can basically hack anything in a thumb drive. Yeah. And they're tiny little things. And so they plug one of those into your network and positively nothing interesting happens because they're just on the internet. Interesting. Because okay. they can't, because you're verifying, but they fail verification. Sorry, you get treated as a, as a naughty person and put down the naughty step. So these <laughs> things really do apply everywhere. It's uh, kind of impressive. But we're getting slightly ahead of ourselves by digging into technology because for this to actually work, you actually need to have a, what are we trying to achieve? So there are many, many really cool technology and they can be configured to do almost anything. So unless everyone is applying the same end goal when they're configuring things, you end up with a random walk of chaos, right? Uh, okay. You need to align all of these security controls, or they're meaningless. 
And so the only way that works is if you get buy-in, not from the head of cybersecurity, not from the head of IT. You need buy-in at the very, very top. Because the very first thing that has to be figured out is the so-called segmentation policy. We have a lot of people and things. How do we as an organization visualize dividing them into groups? What is it that to Mm. us is important? So in a university, you may have administrative versus academic staff. You definitely are going to have staff versus student. You possibly are going to have, you know, the finance department, those kind of administrative departments are probably some sort of special case that you need to identify those people. Uh, You then are probably going to have visiting researchers, so they're a whole different kettle of fish. So who do we have and how do we divide them up? What are the actual groupings that matter? Right. So if you break your people up And that has to be decided from top down? Absolutely from top down, because the top people are going to decide, right? And the single worst way to do this, by the way, is cost center. It is the absolute (laughs) easiest way to do things, because... The only thing that's well encoded in software is who's paying you. So if right, you want an right. easy grouping of people, you just go to the HR system and you take it from there. It results in disastrously bad design of things. So you actually need the organization to decide how they want to break things up because that's then going to translate into rules. Only people in HR and finance are allowed access contracts. Only administrative staff are allowed to work on weekends but they have to do it from a, from a corporate-owned device. Students should never be allowed to do whatever. But they can log in from any device. Guest devices, we don't care, right? So you've these different rules for these different people. So the very first step is to know the people, and then the decision-makers decide how privileges are supposed to flow in this organization, right? They're, they're the org people. So get them to actually define the org and to say who should be able to do what, who must be able to do what, who absolutely shouldn't be able to do what, right? Define in clear language the problem to be solved. And that can then be translated into security control with the amazing array of really cool technology. I'm picturing that being by cost center when you're done. <laughs> but but you're right, there can be people within HR who don't actually need access to personnel records. Exactly. So you really do have to think about how you break it down. And segmentation is the biggest problem, but actually there's a second problem that's almost as big, and maybe they actually are as big as each other. Know your data. Data governance is probably as important as segmentation. Like, it is amazing how many organizations cannot answer the question, what data do you have? Where is it? And how long are you supposed to be keeping it? (laughs) Supposed to be, right? Because there's laws about this kind of stuff. So actually knowing your data is spectacularly important. And that will, again, guide your, your, um, your policy rules, right? Contracts must be kept for five years. Contracts cannot be seen by anyone below blah grade. Or are the subject of the contract. You, you, you have all of these kind of rules, right? Contracts Who maintains can, all this? This sounds like a nightmare. Wait, this is where CISOs are supposed to earn their keep, right? Your C-suite executives, your CISO is supposed to be leading this. That's your CISO's job. It's not just to go to meetings. It's to go to meetings to do this. 
They don't get yeah, their but hands technical. That's a negotiation too. That's not oh, just yeah. a, and a and normally a CISO is is would have be in an influence position in a lot of ways for the people that they've got to argue with, right? Well, the CISO days, is not over HR or engineering or contracts. Well, that that is another thing that's changing the industry. The CISO is now on a par. So CISO is now a peer with people like the CFO. So they're sure. actually yeah. So that actually gives them a lot of like chances powerful, are the head of but HR. It's not the same. You're, you, yeah, you don't get to dictate. You have mm-hmm. to lead, which is and way negotiate. more difficult. Yeah, and yeah. negotiate right because you got to yeah. say you know hearts and minds and make those decisions. But that oh, that sounds like a nightmare to have to manage too. Yes, and the other thing is these all have to be living documents. Well, right, right. This is change. not a one-off. Yeah, exactly. In fact, that's pretty much the worst way to do this is a one-off. So these policies have to be living documents that everyone has access to and everyone is aware of. That's another important thing with policies. You mm-hmm. don't just write them, you're supposed to read them too. <laughs> but, so they are actually the hard parts. Well, they are now by far the hardest parts is to get your clear policies. And then you can hand it over yeah. to techies and then the techies get to have fun. Because that's where the really cool technology kicks in, right? Because once you have those policies, you now know many, many problems to be solved, but you can state them in simple ways. I need to make sure that no one who's not on a corporate device can access these contracts. That's actually a technology problem. I can solve that. Right, right. So once you have your policies, you get to have fun. And I want to end this segment because we're nerds and we love this stuff, by talking about the amazing tools available to modern IT people. It is astonishing what is available to us these days. And for some context, I'm going to give you the highlight of the highlight of the highlight. I recently got my Microsoft certification in this stuff, and I got my certification in the architecture level, the overview level of Microsoft's technologies. In other words, I am certified to know the big picture and only the big picture. And it took Microsoft two days to tell me the big picture. Oh, wow. And you didn't think they wasted your time? I did not think they wasted my time. In fact, I spent an entire day cramming for the exam because they didn't have enough time in those two days to wedge everything into my brain. Wow. So this is the highlights of the highlights. (laughs) But it's cool. So... If you're and, going and this to, is not Microsoft-specific, right? I am going to give you examples from how Microsoft implement things because that's literally what I know. Okay. But the same ideas, Microsoft didn't invent this. Everyone is rowing in this direction. They're going to give things slightly different names. And I'm not sure. saying the features are going to be identical, But it's going to be as similar as Windows is to Linux is to the Mac or as iOS (laughs) is to Android, right? They're all solving the same problem with, you know, a different UI. And some people are very passionate about the very small differences. (laughs) Okay. Very passionate. But at the end of the day... Let me guess, there'll be wars about it, right? (laughs) Oh, I'm sure. Absolutely. Nerd wars. Nerd wars are the best kind. Exactly. So, but yeah, you're like, the ideas are everywhere. So if you're going on this journey... The place everyone agrees you should start is with your users. Because that's actually the bit that if you nail that down, you're like 80% of the way. And then you're, you know, the well, your users and your data. But the users is definitely the single most important. So we're used to thinking of being logged in as binary. I am logged in. I am not logged in. There are two states. 
in or out? Yes or no? But in the modern zero trust world, it's absolutely not like that. Your login state is on a spectrum and there's a heck of a lot of metadata associated with that state. And so remember we're saying continuously verify. Well, as I'm moving around the system and meeting different doors to go through, they all are going to have different rules and they're all going to be examining my current login credential and they can each make up their own mind whether or not it is sufficient. So I could start on the main web portal and log in with just my username and password. And it will say, yeah, you're logged in, but at the lowest level of confidence, you're on your own device, you're not on a corporately owned device. So sure, you can see the homepage. Yeah, you can have a look at the news. You can have a look at the president's message. Oh, you want to check your email? Mm, Sorry, no, I need more confidence. Two-factor auth, please. Okay. Oh, interesting. Okay. You've passed that test. Here's your inbox. Okay, great. You're poking around for a bit. Oh, you want to go off to the SharePoint for the HR department? You want to look at the hiring people for this new job position? Yeah, I know you have 2FA, but you're on your personal laptop. Sorry. No. Come back from your Hmm. work-owned laptop. Oh, okay. I see you've logged in from your work laptop. Here you go. Right. So it is a continuous, every decision is made again, right? When we say continuous verification, every time you try to do something, we check your credential and we know- well, They're also cascading as well, right? Because you could now you could be to the point where you're logged in, you've got 2FA, you're on your work-owned laptop, but you aren't in HR. Right, exactly. Because then you meet the next door. It's like, okay, well, great. You're, you're, you know, we have successfully verified you. However- this piece of data here also has rules about it, and those rules mm-hmm. say no. And the only way you get access to something is if everyone says yes, right? And everyone has a veto. Any no is a no. And so the signals encapsulated in that simple, am I logged in or not, are actually way, way bigger. Where are you? Okay. Are you on a guest device or are you on a corporate device? Are you in Ireland? Are you in America? Are you on a VPN? Are you in the office? Are you not in the office? Right? That's all. So IP-based, geography-based. What level of authentication did you just pass for me? Did you just do a password or did you do an old-fashioned multi-factor auth where I sent you a code and you typed the code back in? Or did you do passwordless? Did you do like a pass key or a FIDO2 key or Windows Hello? Because then I'm going to have you the absolute highest level of trust. And the other thing that comes with you that you don't get to control is the AI on the back end is analyzing all of the data available to it and it gives you a risk score. So your current login has a risk score. How confident am I that you are really you? Very confident? Not very confident. And that confidence level can be used to decide on your access at every door you meet as well. Like like you've met a threshold, for example? Yeah. So it's very much like a spam filter, right? A spam filter works by basically it has a whole bunch of rules and every time you do something naughty, your spam score goes up and if your spam score crosses a specific threshold, it will get a warning label. If it crosses a higher threshold, it will get quarantined. If it passes a higher threshold, it will just be binned and never shown to you, right? Well, the same sort of approach can be applied to your access controls. Like you have come with a risk score and you're now trying to do something more or less dangerous. Well, we are going to decide what you can do based on your risk score. So yeah, you might be allowed to do a few things with your own data, but you get nowhere near the corporate stuff. Right? So it is massively on a spectrum, which is a very different way of thinking about it from a yes-no decision like we used to do. 
Yeah. The other now, thing one then, of the things I keep thinking about in this is in this entire concept is from my background, my first thought is how much is the sysadmin going to get yelled at about this? So uh, having the the policies from above, that's that really helps you. Like, hey, not my problem. They did it to me. This, this is their fault. You go yell at the the CISO, or your boss has to influence the CISO to change this this basic yeah. policy, and that's important. But if misconfigured, they can end up in that same spot where they're getting hollered at. That. Well, no, actually, I was on my corporate laptop. I was under 2FA. I am in HR, and I couldn't get to the data I needed on a Saturday night. And it's like, oh, shoot, I have you in the bucket where you're not allowed to do it except between 9 to 5. Sure, and then you, that's an easy fix then. It's like, oh, I see, so you've changed role. Well, actually, HR haven't updated your record. Once they do, well, you'll no, end up Well, no, or I, as the sysadmin, misconfigured it. Right, but I, that's, I'm sort of using you as an excuse to segue into the next point. Oh, so, okay. <laughs> right. So everything I've been describing so far has a buzzword name. It's called conditional access. In other words, it's not a yes, no. It's a whole bunch of conditions you have to meet to get your access. It's called conditional access. But you shouldn't do conditional access to you, the individual. Conditional access should be done at the group level. So mm. people get put into groups based on their role within the organization and ideally speaking, that group membership should be automated on a, based off your current status in the HR system. Ideally. So if you move department, you will automatically move groups. If all of the, if all of the permissions are group-based, then your permissions won't have changed, and yet your permissions will have changed, if you get what I mean. Yeah, I think I do. Right, so the, in other words, the sysadmin doesn't have to change a single rule but your access has completely changed because you have moved from one place to another. So that is, you know, working so off Active groups. Directory in that case matters a lot. Yeah, or in fact, these days it's Active Directory's cloudy buddy. It's now AAD. Oh. So it's Azure oh. Active Directory is now the king of the hill. AD oh, is just okay. one of the inputs to Azure AD. AD has been completely demoted. Or rather, there's a whole layer of management has been plastered above its head. Um, <laughs> AAD is now king. Uh, so the other thing that's been broken apart is the concept of a permission, right? When you're looking for permission on things, it's not actually a yes, no in most systems. It's way more granular. You may have read access, but not write access. You may have write access, but not the, uh, not the right to give other people rights. So in reality, um, what you end up with is a, you may have a system that does something and it may define 20 different things which it will encode as 20 different permissions. Now, you could assign each individual permission to each group. So you put your users into groups and you have all of these permissions. But you don't do that. You make groups of permissions, which you call roles, and then you assign those roles to groups of people. So you have people on yeah, permissions. Okay. Sure. You group the people into groups and you group the permissions into roles and you actually do your assignments role to group which is called role-based access, or ORBAC is the acronym. So you so have a collection of permissions. Your who would do admin. that mapping? No, uh, no, 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 no. Okay, no. The so, system is going to obey what they're told. They're going to they're program it to do that. But somebody has to say, these roles go to these groups. Well, okay, so... It's got to be by organization, right? 
it's going to be, so that grouping at the top is really what's going to be king here, right? So how you segmented your right. people is actually what's going to determine that. And the other thing is these right. systems come with pre-made roles. So when you open up your brand new Office 365 tenancy, you will find a whole bunch of roles, like security reader is a role that gives you read-only access to all of the antivirus tools and stuff. Security writer gives you the ability to change these things. Security admin gives you the ability to give people the ability to do things. So a lot of those roles are pre-created. There's roles like help desk that have read-only access to some things and write access to other things. So when you actually open it up, thankfully, there either will be a role that does exactly what you want or one you can right-click duplicate on and then change one or two. So the examples you gave were people inside IT. What about for people who are not inside IT? Does it come with roles for them? Uh, yes, there's roles for... Uh, the Finance, answer, yes. manufacturing, uh, yeah, marketing... To be honest, yes. Um, the ones that I would okay. become in contact with more will be things like a database owner or stuff like that, where basically you have, whose data is this? Like data owner, those kind of things. Because in every system, someone actually owns the data, right? It's not, the techies don't own the data. The business units own the data. So they're actually different roles, right? Who owns the data versus who makes it tick. Um, you have roles for... Yeah, well, actually, a lot of the roles relate to people, say, in the legal department, um, because you can do things like put uh, holes for uh, litigation holds and stuff like that. You have all of these kind of roles as well. Because if someone sends you a subpoena saying, we need all of your data relating to bloody blah, that actually has to be a security control. That data has to become hmm. undeletable. It may also legally have to become inaccessible and undeletable simultaneously. So that would be an on-the-fly role kind of uh, so there's actually making. There, there, well, there's actually a role where the people with the power to give data the attributes that says you're on a legal hold. So right. you have people okay. have permission to manage the hold status of data. So wow. it's role-based access or back. Very cool. The other yeah, really cool a lot cool of work. <laughs> yeah, but again, when these things are all aligned with each other, and they're all aligned with the central policy, it sings. It just, oh, it's amazingly powerful. Yeah, and, it's all that part before if. <laughs> right, but the way you get to harmony oh, is by having that good policy. That's why I led, that's why I started there. The other amazingly yeah. cool thing that's changed is how we deal with privileged users, right? Root is the ultimate privileged user. And in the old world, your sysadmins have root everywhere. That is how it works. You are a sysadmin, thou art God everywhere. That is not a zero-trust approach to privilege. So the acronym is, uh, I have it wrong in the show, notes. it says Privilege Identity Management, PIM. Fixing the show notes now. Um, so with PIM, you, again, it's role-based, so you give the users the privileges they actually need instead of just, you have all privileges everywhere. And you don't give them permanently. You give people the right to access the privileges they need. And you can do that in two ways. So for your sysadmins, they will have the ability to self-service escalate their rights temporarily. Oh, interesting. Okay, because you do need them to do that job, be able to do it when they do it, but they don't need the privilege to just be sitting there loitering, waiting for them to need it. Yeah, so their session cookie shouldn't have all of this power any which time. So they actually should have to go okay. through an exercise to attain the power temporarily, so time limited, 
But also, people who are not full sysadmins should be able to temporarily request privileges. So actually, you can have an approval loop. So some people can self-service, but other people have approval loops. And you could have time-based roles where you could say stuff like, well, service desk people can have those rights Monday to Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. You can't have a metaverse, but your sysadmin, you could be on call any time. They can have the access any time. And you might ask yourself, okay, I see the concept of an approval loop. Why would you have someone be able to give themselves the power entirely self-service? What does that achieve? Well, it achieves two things. The first obvious thing it achieves is an audit chain. You know who it was had powers at any particular time. Who was elevated oh. at 5 p.m. on a Friday? Right? Oh, that's already that's important. Interesting, yeah. So you have an audit trail, but the other thing you have is you can use conditional access at this point. This is a door. Therefore, you're, you can have the right to self-service escalate, but only from a corporately owned device, only after you've done full 2FA with a biometric. Right? Okay. Right. So you can take your previous technologies and layer them onto this. And so to get your root powers, you n- we now need to have very high confidence that you are you, that your device is your device, and that you're from a network we trust. So in other words, yes, you have this power, but only when you're VPN'd in. Sorry, but you can't attain this power just from your ISP. Got to come through the corporate VPN for this. This is too important. Right, right. So you have a huh. control point. So that's why you want to have PIM. It's extremely powerful. Now, the other thing I definitely want to wax on about for a while is control of your data. Because like I say, all of the data has these labels glued to it, right? The data and the labels move together. That's really important. If you copy the file from your OneDrive to Microsoft Teams to something else, the metadata comes with the data. They're an atom. They move together. And those data come under two big buckets. You have data classification and you have data retention labels. So classification labels would be, I mean, you basically, they're like tags in your blogging software. So you might have a collection of tags that describes what something is. This is a contract. This is an annual report. This is nothing of importance. So you would only attach a label to something of importance. Or the labels could be sensitivity labels. So it could be your old, you know, if you work in a government sector, they could literally map to whatever the heck those labels are that are on classified documents, right? Secret, top secret, the stuff you have to go through a skiff for, whatever the heck that's called. Um, segmented classified or something. They have all of these names for things, right? So you can just stick those names onto your labels and then you can literally implement in controls the policy that is only senators can see this thing or whatever. So your labels yeah, fall into actually those two groups. skiffs are behind our segmented networks, so they wouldn't yeah necessarily be part of this. But but you could have segmentation within, or you could have these rules and roles within a skiff that mm. would control that somebody has access to uh, this kind of of data and somebody else has access to a different kind of data. In fact, you could lock it down to the point that only terminals in skiffs can open this folder. Unless you're in a computer, because you have control of identity, so you know that the computer this person is from is in a skiff. You could say, well, actually, unless you're on a skiff computer, none of this is well, accessible but if to you. It, there's, I'm saying they're segmented networks. They're, they're air-gapped. They're, yeah, but they're segmented. still going they're to a air-gapped. brain. They're still going to a brain somewhere, and that brain can apply... That brain right, would it, apply 
are principles of prove to me that you're in that skiff. I know you're air-gapped. I don't care. I want your certificate. I want you to prove to me. Never trust, yeah. always verify. Yeah, I, when it's air-gapped, it's, I don't know. No, 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 sorry. That, but. With the zero trust, no, in the, in the modern world, you, you do both. You air, the air-gap is a thing, but remember, everything can be hacked. So you verify again. You actually would do it. You actually would layer on top of it. Belt down suspenders. Keep your trousers up. Mm. Honestly, that is that is the way I'm we girl. We don't thing. wear belts. <laughs> uh, I've seen belts. Very elaborate belts. Old Not to hold the pants up, though. Okay, <laughs> oh. decorative in nature. <laughs> really? Oh, that's disappointing and irrelevant. Uh, <laughs> so w- your data can be labeled. And then those labels are how you apply your rules. Now, you can manually label things. And there are certain instances where that is actually the right thing to do, right? You're writing a contract, you would label it as a contract. But one of the things you will be doing on these services is having the computer do the donkey work, like scanning documents for things like credit card numbers and labeling the document as containing credit card numbers, scanning for social security numbers and labeling the document as containing social security numbers. And then you can apply rules like any document with a credit card cannot be downloaded or any document with a credit card cannot be shared with guests or any document Mm. with a social security number cannot go onto Teams. It must stay in SharePoint. All those kind of rules, right? Because the document has a label. So the document literally can't go into Teams if it has that data, that label on it? Correct. Because all of these things How does it get the label? Well, ah, okay. So you can label it manually or... AI is the answer. Basically, all of these things are run through data classifiers where they will... So a credit card is easy. That's a regular expression. But you can also do things like scan the document for, say, inappropriate language and flag the document as potentially troublesome. Right? This document Hmm. seems to contain swearing. That's interesting. Or this document seems to refer to a project that we have marked as highly secret. It, it's using these, this word, this word, and this word, and we have codename Donkey's Umbrella for this really super secret whatever it is, widget of some kind. So anything that mentions Donkey's Umbrella, we should be marking as being top secret. And what this seems to be part of Donkey's Umbrella. Um, you can basically, you can specify patterns, or you can actually do your own AI. So you can basically give it a bunch of data and tell it, learn this data set. These are yes, these are no. Go learn. You can actually feed a neural engine that way. And then you basically <laughs> have trained your own data classifier. And the buzzword you're looking for for all of this stuff is data leak protection or DLP. Because you're, you're stopping data leaking out. So that's the type of labels that you're talking about is called data leak protection? Well, no. So you have the the labels and then you have rules to prevent, rules to control what happens to label data. And those rules are your DLP. Sitting on the edge is a whole, the last check as a file is about to be handed down to someone is, okay, does this meet our rules? Oh, heck no, you're not allowed to download that block. That's DLP. Okay. You literally can't email it. You go into Outlook, you hit send, and it goes, nope. This attachment is classified. The recipient is my best friend at google.com. No. <laughs> now, I don't want to go too deep into the rest of this stuff, but, uh, you know, devices get validated too 
right? So your your mobile device management and stuff gives your devices certificates to prove they are who they're supposed to be. And the last sort of thing I want to dig into in any kind of detail is just to mention that there's another binary that's gone. We've replaced it with a spectrum. So it used to be a case that a machine was either managed by the corporation or not managed by the corporation. Yes, no, managed, unmanaged. That's mm-hmm. gone too. That's now a spectrum. One not end of really. the spectrum, you have guest machines. We literally know nothing about these machines. It's a random machine. The next thing on the spectrum is a registered device. We know about it, but we have zero control over it. It hasn't been given, we haven't been given control over it, but we know it's your iPhone. So it's like, well, okay, this is a registered device, therefore we can allow a little bit more. For example, if Allison logs in from Allison's registered device, then our confidence level in that login is higher. So Alison will probably get through more doors before being pestered with multi-factor authentication because we have a higher level of confidence. But that's probably all you get from a registered device. And you have an audit trail, so you know you might let people do a little bit more. How, then, how would a, regist- uh, a device get registered? Is that an automatic registration or that's somebody typed in a Mac address? or uh, The way it would actually work is that you would log in to... Okay. It will be different for Google, but let's just, in the Microsoft world, the way it works is you log into the Microsoft Office portal and you download what's called the uh, Company Portal is the name of the app. And when you install Company Portal, it will say, do you want to register this device? And you'll say yes. Okay. So you have proactively installed the Company Portal, which like means on you your have personal proactively. device, for yes. example? Yes. Ew. Ew. No, because you haven't given the corporation rights. You've registered the device. Now, I'm going to skip over the really cool middle ground for a second and jump to the obvious other end of the spectrum. It's a corporately owned device. The corporation can do anything. They can remote wipe the device. They can view every file Mm -hmm. you have on the device. They have full, total, and utter control. But between those two things we've talked about, there's a really cool new middle ground that didn't used to exist. A partially managed device. So you install Company Portal, and you use Company Portal to install apps bought by the company. And you use Company Portal to map your company resources like SharePoint and stuff. And the company control those apps and only those apps. They can remote wipe the app. The data, in fact, will be permanently encrypted, and what they're actually doing is destroying the encryption keys. And they can give you access to the software they've paid for on your device because they're controlling those apps and only those apps. Corporate IT cannot see a single file other than those apps you install through the company portal. So you literally choose, I want the company to have this piece of the company on my computer and the company can do that and nothing else. And this is supported on iOS, this is supported on Windows, this is supported on the Mac. This is modern feature of the mobile device management APIs. And so all the OSs are implementing it, which is amazingly cool because it means you can both BYOD or the so-called COPE, corporately owned, personally enabled. Gives you sort of a mix of my data, your data. I can destroy my data. You can destroy your data and we can live together. It's a very Hmm. interesting middle ground. And it definitely didn't used to exist because the answer right, used to right. be, my device, heck no, 
corporation get no power because if you give if you enrolled your device in old fashioned MDM, the corporation could do anything. They could read right, all right. of your personal email. They could do anything. That's not true anymore. If you have one of these halfway house devices, the company can do exactly what you let them and zero more. Very powerful. Huh. And That's, again, uh, yeah, that, I mean, I, I, my memory of this is just the part where people were starting to allow company uh, email on their devices. Yeah, which is a scary thing. So nowadays that would all be, the data will be encrypted while it's on the personal device and corporate IT would have the power to blow it away in an instant. Right, right. Oh, and, so and they would tell us, yeah, we, we own that, basically. Yeah, which is perfect. It's kind of what you want. You know, it's all segmented off and safe. And then the last thing I do want to quickly touch on is, what is the effect of assuming you're always hacked? Because that actually really changes how you do things. When you work with that assumption, it changes what you want massively. So one of the single most important pieces of modern tech in the security professional's armory is something called a SEAM which I call a single pane of glass. The, the acronym stands for Security Incident and Event Monitoring. It's a giant big bucket of logs. Every single system you own pumps all of its logs into your seam. And so you end up with what Microsoft actually genuinely call a data lake. And they give you a query language for querying the data lake and you use that querying language to build up alerts and things to look out for whatever it is that you want to see or don't want to see. And you can build reports and you can build graphs and you can have alerts trigger if someone fails to log in 50 times and all these kind of things. And so that is your seam. And that is, if you're assuming anything can be hacked, well, then you're actively looking for what is hacked today because you've just assumed that something is probably always hacked. But then the obvious question is, okay, great, you've assumed that. What? Where? How do I stop it? So of course you want your seam. And once you have your seam and you can do all of your reporting and you can do all of your proactive hunting, the next thing you're kind of going to want is to automate away the drudgery. If you suddenly have reports telling you every time something weird happens, you're going to get told about a lot of stuff that you probably... Benign neglect was probably okay. But now you know you can't do that anymore. <laughs> so very soon after seams were released, they started to develop more advanced features that they wanted to charge you more for. So they had to make a new acronym. They couldn't just say it was a better seam. <laughs> they had to give it a new acronym. So then they started calling it seam slash SOAR, which they managed to make stand for Security Orchestration Automation, Automation and Response. In other so words... S-O-A-R. S-O-A-R, SOAR. Okay. Basically, scripting. If alert says this account is compromised, then disable their password and send the name with it the help desk saying, contact Bob, he's hacked. Oh, okay. Right. So basically, we now have alerts. A heck of a lot of them can be automated in our response to them. So that's what your SOAR does. It automates your response. And so does that help you with all these, the excessive amount of logs that you're getting that are sounding alarming, but maybe you don't need to do anything. A, a human doesn't need to interfere. Yeah. Or at the very least, you can do an awful lot of the cleanup work. A human will probably be involved. So a classic example is you would have a rule that would detect suspicious email sending activity because one of the most common things to do with a hacked account is to send out 20 billion spam emails or phishing right. emails. So if you detect unusual sending activity, you would block access to the account and send a message to the help desk saying, someone reach out to Bob 
Their password's just been reset. We're going to have to get a new password off them. We're going to have to run AV on their machine. We're going to have to give Bob a hand. Well, you've already done a whole bunch of the work and everything is now ready for the service desk to just do the final bit. You know, get Bob to call in with his corporate ID, verify that Bob is Bob and get Bob to set himself up with a new password. And then Bob can go on his way and maybe give Bob a little bit of a discussion on password sharing. (laughs) That's the last checkbox. Yeah, and it's kind of an important checkbox, to be honest. And then just because we haven't got enough features and acronyms, because the next thing people thought was we could charge even more if we threw some AI at the problem. What if we didn't make people write their own rules? What if we automated the writing of the rules? Because you know something, an awful lot of weird stuff is actually in common across all of our millions and millions and millions of customers. So if we sell some good AI, we should be able to automate away an awful lot of stuff and save them having to invent their own rules. And so we need another new acronym so we can charge more money. So we're going to call it XDR because that sounds cool. Apparently that stands for Extended Detection and Response. So if you want a buzzword compliance security tool, you want a seam and soar with XDR. Which in <laughs> Microsoft... They have a lot of acronyms. <laughs> yep. Which in Microsoft land translates into Sentinel as a product they want to sell you. Okay. But one of my cool, one of the coolest thing an XDR will do is it will find what's called anomalous. I can't even say it. Anomalous normal. This is a really cool thing. So the approach bad guys take these days, or threat actors to give them their fancy name, is they call it living off the land. Use the tools regular folks use, but use them to do naughty things. So if you're only looking in the log for they have used a known hacking app, you're going to see nothing because they're going to use built-in tools and features in the operating system to do things. So each individual event is normal, but the pattern of use is not. So when you zoom out, you see weird behavior. It's basically normal Lego blocks used to build a skull. And crossbones. And so it's called the anomalous normal because every piece is arguably normal. But when you look at the big picture, those pieces have been assembled into something very not normal indeed. Sending an email is normal. Logging in from the VPN is probably normal. But logging in from a device you haven't logged in before and then sending a thousand emails within five minutes, that is anomalous normal. Each individual piece is normal. The collective is absolutely not normal. And those rules of what isn't normal exist in in this tool? Yeah, so an XDR will use AI to find the anomalous normal. Huh. And that will be trained basically on all the other customers. Because the bad guys are attacking everyone. So a bit like Google can do better spam filtering because they have everyone's inbox. A cloud provider can give you a better SeamSoar XDR because they're doing SeamSoar XDR for everyone. They don't give you anyone well, else's minute. personal they're data. Looking at, yeah, how is that anonymized? But think about it. A spam email that comes to me, I don't. it's no invasion of privacy for you to block it from my inbox as well as yours. An attack pattern that I see on your tenancy doesn't tell me anything if it's also blocked in my tenancy. Right, so if the pattern is login from unknown device to a remote desktop session 
followed by a remote desktop to three other devices, followed by some sort of weird data transfer. Okay. If that's the pattern, I can take that pattern and give, take away no anonymity and check for that pattern on every other account. And anywhere I see that pattern, I flag it because that is not right. So everyone gets to learn. Everyone benefits from what the AI has learned from everywhere else. So it's, it's, it's like a common, right? You all get to benefit from scale. But they are very fun tools to play with. I am happy to say I get to play in Sentinel. It's amazingly cool. I'm afraid you're um, attracted by the sexiness of the tools and not being influenced at all by how much work it is to figure out what the rules are that you're going to get to apply. But I mean, maybe that's the joy of being in your job, not the other jobs. Well, the nice thing is if there's clear policies, the tools make it very easy, which is why I started right, the policy. Right, <laughs> so I'm saying the hard part's the, pol- the policies and the rules. That's, that's the hard part. It is, which is why there's a lot of... Uh, yeah, you need buy-in from... The, yeah, you need buy-in at the top. Now, the fact that these things are expensive is very helpful because the only way you're ever going to get these tools is if you get buy-in from the top. Okay. So you won't have these tools without someone at the top having decided this is important. And they're not going to decide it's important until they've made a business case. They're not going to make a business case until they've figured out. But don't worry, Microsoft starts with all the money you're going to save. Yeah, because it has to to make its way to the C-suite without getting laughed out. Right. How do you get yourself the meeting with the CEO? I'm here to save you money. And to stop you being on the front page of the Irish Times because you've just been hacked to a million pieces. I'm afraid I'm, I, I'm still such a skeptic, though, because you know when they calculate how much money they're going to save you, they're not going to account for all of the 8 billion people who have to write all these rules and decide and have meetings and, and get together to figure out how it all works together. That's not being never, well, never taken into account. It would be about Microsoft, to be honest, right, when they're doing their calculations. The other thing is um, a lot of this stuff is now outsourced as well. So you would actually get um, SOC as a service, Security Operations Center as a service, which means that all of the threat hunting and all of the rule creation would all be done on your behalf by a paid set of professionals. So like you might have an ad agency you would have a security agency. Yeah, you're missing, and maybe I don't need to, I definitely don't need to belabor it, but I will anyway. I, I just have been <laughs> the victim of these, the salespeople saying this is going to save all this time, but then it's the meeting that somebody, the people that have to sit there deciding that somebody in HR between 8 and 5 p.m. from this kind of device, they have they get these privileges. Making those decisions is meetings, and those people didn't get extra overhead money to sit in those meetings. They had to stop doing something else. So there is cost that is never captured yes. by people like Mike, from companies like Microsoft. Never. But there isn't any other choice. You have to do this. Correct. And the other thing is, th- th- you never arrive at the perfect answer here. This is a way of continuously improving, but. You will never finish. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's a bit of like, you know, it's like the State of the Union address, right? Our union is more perfect, but it's never done, mm-hmm. right? You're, you have never finished. And that is what this process is. So how, how do I evaluate where I am? How do I evaluate what I need to do next? How do I make things better? Well, that is what Zero Trust is there to help you figure out the answers to. It's a way of thinking about it that's so much more powerful than the old medieval castle approach. So you're never going to be perfect, but you're going to keep getting better. And this is a really good way to figure out what is better and how do I go in that direction? 
it sounds like the it, it sounds amazing and it, like I said, it sounds like you don't really have a choice. You have to do something like this because your other choice is lose all your data. <laughs> right, because whether you assume you're going to be breached or not, you are. <laughs> exactly. It's sort of like the physics so doesn't care whether you believe in it or not, right? <laughs> yeah, what is it? Neil deGrasse Tyson says the universe is under no obligation to make sense. I guess so. Yeah, so, you know, you, it doesn't matter that you don't think it should be like this. Well, hello, welcome to planet Earth. It's like this, so do your best you can. And this is a very helpful framework for getting you there. So if you're wondering how corporate IT see the universe, this is the lens that's in focus, that's in use at the moment to look at the world. Zero trust. I'm hoping it makes a bit more sense to people. Yeah, I learned an awful lot about this. This is really interesting stuff. I appreciate you coming on to do this for us. Now, I dare you to figure out what your sign-off is. Oh, yeah. That's a really good point. <laughs> probably, probably the yeah, security I, I, bit sign-off would work, right? Yeah, because at the end of the day, the single most important thing is to stay patched, because otherwise you're having a hope in hell of staying secure. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond. Did you notice there weren't any ads in the show? That's because this show is not ad-supported. It's supported by you. If you learned something, or maybe you were just entertained, consider contributing to the PodFeet podcast. You can do that by going over to podfeet.com and look for the big red button that says support the show. When you click that button, you're going to find different ways to contribute. If you like to do a one-time donation, you can click the PayPal button. If you want to make a recurring contribution, click the weekly Patreon button. Or another way to contribute is to record a listener contribution. It's a great way to help the Nocilla Castaways learn from you. If you want to contact me for any reason, you can email me at allison at podfeet.com and you can follow me on Twitter at podfeet. Maybe you want to talk to other Nocilla Castaways. You can do that in our Slack group at podfeet.com slash Slack. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.